This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. It's been a little over a year since James Fry's memoir, A Million Little Pieces, caused what Fry's then-literary manager described as a media frenzy unlike any she'd ever seen over a book. The reason for said media frenzy was pretty simple. Fry's book had been read by a massive number of people as part of the phenomenally successful Oprah's Book Club, and later, parts of the book had been revealed to be, well, made up. Fry appeared on the Oprah Winfrey Show in January of last year. It seems safe to say that both she and many members of her audience were less than pleased with him. This is what I don't get, because when you were here before, you said that there were about 400 pages of documents. You said you kept a journal, you kept pages, that there were documents and reports about everything that you did, because because I said, how can you remember such detail? And that's how you explained it to me. I don't know how you remember all of that detail and you forget Novocaine. Oprah was less jocular in some of her other comments when she summed up a feeling of betrayal whose magnitude had surprised many in the literary world. So, okay, I think this is interesting that you keep calling them characters because as a reader and trusting your story and many times in the story, you say that this is my truth and the truth matters and, you know, and so as a reader, I'm, be- I'm believing you because it's on the bookshelf as a memoir. So why, in a, as a, why didn't you just write a novel? The level of controversy over Fry's book was something new. But questions about how exactly you can tell the truth about events that you yourself experienced and that your memory might have distorted over time are not new. This coming Tuesday evening, Fordham University's Center on Religion and Culture will present a forum exploring those questions. The forum's called The Conscience of a Writer, and the speaker will be Mary Carr. Carr's best-selling memoir, The Liars Club, came out in 1995, and it's been credited as being the book that jump-started the explosion of memoirs we've seen in recent years. She's also the author of a second memoir, Cherry, a third is also on the way, and several volumes of poetry, and she's a professor of literature at Syracuse University. During the James Fry controversy, Carr was a vocal critic of the idea that the line between truth and fiction wasn't important in memoirs. We'll be talking to Carr today on Fordham Conversations, and a little later on, we'll talk to novelist Heidi Julewitz about her take on the truth in her novel, The Uses of Enchantment. But first, I called Mary Carr earlier this week at her home in New York, where she was busy working on a deadline. I started out by asking her why she thinks that memoir has become so popular in the last decade or so. Well, I, I think there are several reasons that have been pushing on it. For one thing, for much of this century, there's been a decline in notions of objective truth. Maybe starting even with the last century, when uh, maybe mid-century, people began to read the Bible as a work of literature and not as an authoritative text, you know, an absolute truth. So that's part of it. I mean, I think the idea of religion began to erode most of the last century and through this century. And then you can sort of see in this country, at the turn of the century, you see notions of scientific truth being eroded. Politicians began to be discredited. Our priests were turning out to be pederasts. So a lot of the systems for absolute authority or absolute truth have been eroding for a long time. In light of that, I think, some notion of subjective truth has gained a new authority, that it's not that memory or personal truth isn't corrupt, but in some ways it admits its corruption in the way, say, maybe the, the body counts in Vietnam that were fluffed up and lied about for political reasons. Those things in some ways are seen as more corrupt than, say, a, an author like Michael Hare, who goes to Vietnam and writes a kind of 
hallucinatory memoir like Dispatches, which became in some ways the voiceover for Apocalypse Now. In some ways that subjective hallucinatory vision is seen as more true than these quote-unquote official documents that we now know were pretty trumped up. Do you think there's starting to be a backlash against against all this subjective truth? Well, I mean, I think there are always there have always been liars, and I think there always will be liars. I don't think you can prevent that. I mean, in journalism and history and you know science and virtually every field, you see people coming up uh, against. Uh, you see people being busted for telling big fat big fat ones. So. You said, in, I like this, in Salon Magazine in this interview in 1997, I don't go to writers or memoirs for morally heroic behavior. I go to Mother Teresa and Desmond Tutu. Why do you think that we do demand so much from memoirists? Is it more than we demand from other producers of media? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, look at how they drag these little girls bouncing in and out of rehab through the trash, you know. I mean, if you sign up to play football, you can't complain you've been hit. You know, you start... Uh, displaying your wounds in the marketplace and cashing in on stories about people who trusted you. I mean, I think memoir has always been a kind of outsider's art and uh, seen as a kind of a scuzzy enterprise at best. I think the problem comes when memoirs represent themselves as heroic. If you read um, Tobias Wolff's This Boy's Life, say, the real enemy against the young Tobias Wolf is not the overbearing stepfather so much as the part of himself that is so much like the overbearing stepfather and, and is himself becoming a bully. I always say um, the enemy in any memoir has to be some aspect of the writer's self for it to be a true, for it to sort of warrant the form. Otherwise, if you're just dealing with external barriers, write it in the third person or write it as fiction. You have more, more leeway. But to write in the first person as a memoir, you have, you're able to tell a deeper story. So there should be a deeper story to tell. With James Fry, I think, the reason there was so much uh, scandal was this was someone who had really represented himself as a kind of guru who had a way to stay sober without going to Alcoholics Anonymous. He sort of poo-pooed a lot of the 12-step theories and programs. And, you know, I, I think that might be a kind of dangerous position to take. So, I mean, the book is the book of, of a chest thumper and a kind of bantam rooster. It's not, it's not a book like Frank McCourt's book, say, Angela's Ashes, where if somebody's behaving badly most of the time, it's Frank, it's young Frank. So I think in, in cases like those, it's sort of the case of, of uh, Richard Nixon standing up and saying, no, we didn't bomb Cambodia. Yeah, I guess we did. So in my experience, the really Great memoirs, like great works of literature, are very complicated psychological stories. They're not able to be reduced to a soundbite um, any more than Anna Karenina could be. And they're not, they don't seem written to blame or for self-aggrandizement. Certainly, I mean, in Liar's Club, I take aim at people with a BB gun as a child. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, don't, I wouldn't exactly call that representative behavior or you know it's it's not the kind of thing that i'm i'm holding up as an example of my fine development so i think with fry because he had sort of posed in this way and even when he was busted for lying continued i watched the entire larry king episode in which he was very sarcastic and mocking and said things tacitly untrue i mean one of the things he said was 
well, I'm, I'm writing in the tradition of, of Hemingway and Fitzgerald, and Larry King says, well, you know, they're fiction writers. And he said, uh, yeah, but, I mean, that was before there were memoirs. And, in fact, Hemingway had written a memoir, which apparently Fry didn't know about. So he seemed fairly pompous, fairly self-satisfied. And, um, you know, now in retrospect, I feel much sorrier for the guy than I did at the time. I mean, at the time, I'd received about 15 phone calls a day, including from Newsweek and, and uh, the New York Times and Washington Post and San Francisco Chronicle. I've been giving interviews, trying to defend myself and other writers who I think have really tried to be very careful about what they say is true and is not true. I mean, and if you think about it, and one of the things I tell people, the reason I think James Fry would be an anomaly is the same reason a journalist like Jason Blair in the New York Times scandal would be such an anomaly. If you're going to make up stuff out of whole cloth, just fabricate it and publish it as true, you're likely to get busted. And somebody's going to read that who was there and knew different. Most of the memoirists I know really try to stick with the stuff that's stuck hardest with them. As, as uh, McCourt says, you know, I write about stuff that I couldn't forget. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We're talking today on the show about the truth in literature with the memoirist Mary Carr and in a few minutes the novelist Heidi Julevitz. Carr's the author of the best-selling memoir The Liars Club about her early 60s Texas childhood. That book came out in 1995, but it's out now in a 10th anniversary edition from Penguin. She's also the author of another memoir, Cherry, about her teen years, and of several books of poetry. Carr will be speaking at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus this coming Tuesday evening. Let's return to our conversation. One thing that struck me about the whole James Fry thing and a lot of this stuff is that you sort of, because people who write memoirs are writing about themselves, if you like the book, you want to like them, no matter how unsympathetically they portray themselves. And I think that's a big, it's a big fall. When you someone think? like Oprah is saying you're a bad person, um, I think he was really posturing as a tough guy. You know, there was a lot of yeah, I had a hole in my cheek, and I got on the airplane, and and they were yanking my teeth out and drilling through my face, and I was I was toughing it out because that's the kind of tough guy I am. So I didn't perceive him as particularly sympathetic. I saw it as much more posed and postured, uh, sort of chest thumpy, manly kind of phony. Dookie. You know, I always just thought it was not true. I just thought it wasn't a very good book. Now, The Liars Club came out in a 10th anniversary edition in 2005, and in that edition you had a new introduction. One of the things that you say in the introduction is that people come up to you at book readings and at other times, and they write to you about their horrible childhoods. And you say that most or many of those people are who've survived those things and they've moved on from them, they seem to be pretty, you know, normal people. Do you think that's something that most readers of memoirs want to believe could happen to the main character slash writers? Well, it is something that's happened. I mean, one of, the, one of the reasons I think people find memoirs hopeful, even when they are so dark, is that the writer lived to tell the tale and at least grew up literate enough to gin out a book and find a publisher and stand up in the Barnes & Noble and have a cappuccino after with a, a few readers. So, And I think... I think the human soul is a, an amazingly resilient entity. Um, again, you know, if we look at the previous generation, I think of my father going through World War II, going in at Omaha Beach, 
crossing Europe, being in the Battle of the Bulge, liberating Buchenwald. I mean, he was in his 30s at the time. It's not the same as being a child, but when he was a child, he was sent out to cut wheat when he was 12 years old in Kansas and had to hop a train. So I don't know. I mean, very few of us are born into great ease and great comfort, and even those of us who are born into great ease and great comfort can suffer as children. Some of the most horrifying childhoods I've heard about are in families where nobody's armed and nobody swears and nobody ever raises their voice, but there's a kind of cold judgment or scorn projected onto the children. It's pretty horrifying. What is the temptation, do you think, to uh, to fictionalize parts of memoir, and why do you think that it's something that's wrong to do? I think one reason that memoir is enjoying this little renaissance is because we're using techniques of fiction. All of a sudden, it, it's okay to tell the reader. You know, I didn't have a tape recorder strapped to my head, but a conversation sort of like this took took place. I'm reconstructing this dialogue. It's not exactly how it went. So I think some of those techniques of the novel, say, are things that permit us to write memoirs now that are maybe deeper, more interesting, or read better. So what is the temptation? You know, I always wish I behaved better, I guess. And I usually, when I start to write a book, remember myself behaving better. I remember when I was, I was writing Cherry, I remembered myself as being very smart in high school, but when I actually started to think about high school, I, I never really did anything smart. <laughs> you know, I, I was flunking out of school. I did stupid drugs. I, I didn't read m- many hard books. Now, my best friends were all smart, and I had kind of these pretensions toward being smart. So what would the temptation be? The temptation would be to try to generate some kind of evidence that I was smart. But just thinking about doing that makes me feel really tired. (laughs) I don't know. It makes me – it's not what my deal is with the reader. I feel like I've cut a deal with the reader to tell the truth as much as I know it. And as soon as I start meandering from the actual events, the truth's not going to be told. I don't know what the truth is until I start setting the events down. And the truth for me derives from those events, which is what I found so sad about the James Fry debacle, that he's somebody who didn't trust his events, the sadnesses and the difficulties in his life. He didn't trust that they were sufficiently valuable or interesting to yield up a truth if he actually set them down. And, and uh, as I said in my New York Times op-ed, you know, I bet that's not true. I'm sure there was I'm sure he suffered enormously, and I'm sure he showed enormous courage in trying not to drink and take drugs. Uh, it's just too bad that the book he wrote has nothing to do with that. You tried to write The Liars Club as a novel a few years before you wrote it as a memoir. What happened? I did try to write it as a novel. Here's what happened. The person who was me behaved way better than I had. <laughs> I mean, I did volunteer work at the nursing home. I knew calculus. I used it as an excuse to kind of fabricate this two-dimensional portrait of myself, and it rang really false. A badly written novel, we can see, is, is untrue. The way a well-written novel has a kind of psychological depth and complexity that rings true. So um, also, I just don't know much about novels. I mean, a novel is a much more complicated form than a memoir. What are you working on now? I'm working on my third memoir, which is called Lit, for HarperCollins, and I assume it's going to be out next year. What part of your life is that about? 
Well, exactly. <laughs> what part of my life is that about? Well, um, it's about what happened after I left home. I lived with a bunch of drug dealers in California. I moved to Europe. I tried to figure out ways to become a poet. Some of those were good. Some of them weren't so good. I got drunk a lot. I took a lot of drugs. I stopped drinking and didn't take a lot of drugs. So I don't really know where the story ends. I, I never really know where these things are going to end. I thought my whole life was going to be contained in Liars Club. So imagine my surprise. <laughs> so you are giving, um, you're, you're participating in this forum on March 20th at Fordham. What are you going to talk about? Well, um, I guess I'll talk about my experience writing memoir, some of the moral quandaries I've entered. I also wanted to talk about the way in which, to some extent, you have to really abandon your dignity to write a book like this. And that's really through the whole time you're writing it. You have to be willing to appear as awful as maybe you were. Great. Well, Mary Carr, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for calling. That was author Mary Carr. Her memoir, The Liar's Club, is out now from Penguin, and Cherry is out from Picador. She'll be at Fordham's Lincoln Center campus as part of the forum The Conscience of a Writer this coming Tuesday evening. More information about that is at 212-636-7347. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I had this morning on Cityscape a look at the issues facing aging New Yorkers. Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. But first, in her 2006 novel, The Uses of Enchantment, Heidi Julevitz looked at the truth from a different angle. I spoke with Julevitz about how her novel plays with the idea of the truth. Heidi Julevitz, welcome. Thank you for having me. Tell me about The Uses of Enchantment. The sort of plot hook, I guess, that sort of got me going and gets the book going is a young girl, a high school age, um, 16, 17-year-old girl, disappears. And when she returns, it's unclear whether she was abducted by somebody or whether she faked her abduction. And so the book kind of spirals out from that uncertainty. And all these different people get involved in trying to determine whether or not she was actually abducted or not. Her parents and therapists and soon all these kind of competing stories start to emerge as these different authority figures try to say what happened to her during that disappeared time. Now, that seems like a fairly straightforward narrative, like it could be sort of a a thriller or something like that, but it's actually not written like that. There are three very distinct narrative streams. Yes. And in a way, I was very much modeling this book structure-wise on a book by Tim O'Brien called In the Lake of the Woods. What I loved about that book is it has a thriller-like quality, and I feel like this book does have a thriller-like quality in terms of you feel like there's a mystery and you want to solve that mystery. But what Tim O'Brien's book does, and what I hope this book tries to do too, is it it sort of sucks you in with this need to know an answer. And, you know, when I was reading In the Lake of the Woods, I was turning the pages and turning the pages, and then I suddenly realized, oh, with every page I'm turning, I'm actually getting further away from any kind of certainty. He's introducing so many different possibilities that I'm going to kind of be on my own at the end here, trying to figure out what actually happened. The tension I wanted to go after is having a book that is a thriller, but then also makes you kind of pull back and pause and and have to kind of take stock, I guess, of where you are as a reader in the midst of all these stories. Mary Veal is is the character to whom this stuff may or may not have happened. And 
one of the voices in the book is her voice as an adult. And I thought it was really interesting that her voice as a grown-up was so completely different from her voice as an adolescent. Why did you make the choices that you did with, with telling her story that way? I saw her as somebody who was really impacted by her youth and that it had really hamstrung her both emotionally and also in terms of her own imagination, that she had kind of gone to great lengths, I guess, to discover herself when she was younger and in the process of doing so had really gotten so twisted up in what was true and what wasn't true and who she was trying to please with the truth or a lie and that she'd become sort of in a way almost anesthetized to her former self that her kind of audacious acts had really dulled her, I guess, as a person. And she talks about how she's invisible Mm -hmm. as an adult. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think what's interesting about her, especially since so much of this book deals with therapy, you know, most people, I think, go to therapy. I mean, I'm speaking very simplistically, but I mean, you do go to therapy to kind of unpack your past. You know, your past is this confusing muddle and you go to therapy to kind of order it and understand it and sometimes place it into some kind of a template. And what happens to her is she goes to therapy and instead of her past becoming more ordered and understandable, it becomes totally fractured. It's almost like the Antonioni blow up phenomenon where, you know, you have a picture, a photograph and you blow it up and you blow it up and you blow it up. And the closer you get, the image just starts to disintegrate in front of you. You can't get that close to it and see what it really is trying to show you. So for her, that's the sort of ironic result of her going to therapy is that, in fact, she kind of atomizes her past. And so that's why she has become this kind of unknowable adult, because she doesn't really have a past, at least not one that anyone can kind of agree upon. You set this novel in the town of West Salem, Massachusetts, which is a very thinly veiled fictionalization of Salem, Massachusetts, where the witch trials took place. Why did you do this? I didn't set it in actual Salem for that for the fact that I've never been to actual Salem. (laughs) I figured I could go to West Salem more easily since it doesn't exist. Um, This book to me feels very grounded geographically and culturally and historically in New England. And I grew up in Portland, Maine, which is a couple of hours north of Salem, Massachusetts. But yet I do feel that that kind of Puritan kind of Salem witch, this sort of idea that if you step too far outside of what is accepted behavior in this society, you will be culturally struck down, you know, that the community will kind of self-regulate in a way that means you could be at risk. That to me feels like such emotional legacy growing up in New England, at least, and and especially growing up in the 80s. I was a teenager in the 80s, which is when this book takes place. And the 80s was a very sort of um, explosive time, I guess, in terms of Freud was being overturned and the feminist psychoanalysts, their their critique of him was gaining more speed. He was really actually dethroned. And then very soon thereafter, or almost simultaneously, we had the recovered memory um, explosion. And uh, so it was this strange time where uh, there there was this sort of witch hunty, I guess, quality to that time. I don't want to, you know, give away too much of the mm-hmm. plot, but the theory that um, 
that Mary's uh, psychoanalyst comes up with is called hyperradiance. Yes. And it's very grounded in Salem or in West Salem. Yes. Tell me about that. Well, it's it's a term that I made up, but the syndrome hyperradiance, according to Dr. Hammer, it's almost a uh, a more contemporary way for these girls to act out in the same way that the the girls who claimed to be possessed back in the 1600s acted out. And it's some combination of being essentially a member of a sexually repressed society. And whereas in the past, these girls claimed to be abducted by satanic spirits, these girls actually literally abduct themselves and make themselves disappear. Dr. Hammer's theory ends up being just a sort of very basic Freudian theory. Maryville's family in this is incredibly, they're beyond dysfunctional. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the people in her family. Well, the sisters are extremely jealous of Mary, basically, and remain so. Essentially, I feel the whole family, they get together and they just regress. It's almost as if they they just slip back into this kind of family formula. And since Mary's never really been forgiven for disappearing and doing whatever it is that she did during that time period, the family is as emotionally arrested as she is when they all get back together again. And the sisters are extremely jealous because Mary basically took up all the family emotional energy because of her disappearance and then actually had the gall to become famous because Dr. Hammer writes a book about her and she becomes this sort of famous case study. Um, and then when she's when the case study's overturned, she's yet she gets to become like this sort of famous pariah. Anyway, so they've never forgiven her for that, and they respond with sort of jealous hostility to her. The father is just this kind of tuned out man who's just been bludgeoned by too many kind of high strung women <laughs> in his family, <laughs> and the mother. Which to me doesn't seem like like such a hard to understand position, but I've been asked about this. She would actually prefer that her daughter be seen as a liar, i.e. as someone who has faked her abduction and caused all of this havoc in this town because she has essentially deceived people. She prefers that to the possibility that her daughter actually was abducted and sexually molested. But the mother's not just, I mean, she's not just a little odd. She's quite extreme. Yes, she's an extreme person. And, and I mean, what's sort of interesting about her is that you never... She and Mary actually never speak during the entire book. Um, so, again, they're, they're kind of working through doubles in a way in order to communicate. There's only one scene when they're actually even in the same room together and, and Mary's been forbidden from speaking. But, yeah, she's she's somebody who... She's so, I guess possessed by these notions of like clearing her her relative's name from being a witch because actually you know a lot of times there is that there is a sort of sexual proclivity association to women who were accused of being witches and so there's a suggestion that that's possibly why the mother is so obsessed with clearing this woman's name and she's very much a virginity obsessed and it's all this kind of keeping the whole house just sort of perfect and intact and she just takes it to really bonkers extremes (laughs) why did you write this book was there something else that was on the hopper and you went for this or was this the book you've been just waiting to write for years well I don't know that it's the book I was waiting to write for years it was the culmination of a lot of 
reading I'd been doing. Um, I'd been reading a lot and had found myself extremely fascinated by not only psychoanalysis, but the culture of psychoanalysis and the incredible amounts of infighting and warring and pettiness. And so it was this, this I think, a culmination of, a, of an interest I had both in the psychoanalytic culture, which is really just it's a storytelling culture, you know, and I had sort of started to explore in my second book this notion that therapy is our mode of oral storytelling now, that we go in to these one-on-one situations, and but we are the hero now. It's not just this sort of other hero that's supposed to stand in for all humans now. It's like we are the human. We are the protagonist of this myth that we sort of create with the help of this other person and it creates a really sort of hermetic situation I guess culturally where we all have our own stories but we're not necessarily or when we share these stories um, they don't have that same like every man quality anymore it's more me 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 so I think it was just sort of a culmination of a lot of these interests that I'd had well Heidi Julevitz thanks so much thank you very much for having me that was novelist Heidi Julevitz. Her novel, The Uses of Enchantment, is out now from Doubleday. If you missed part of the show or you'd like to hear it again, we're podcasting these days. If you'd like to subscribe or just learn more, click on podcasting on our homepage, wfuv.org. From WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.